How much time you got? <laughs> I'm talking about somebody's been practicing. Maybe a few minutes? I've been practicing for <laughs> years. Okay, I'm 80 years old. And uh, so uh, when I started out in, uh, um, after finishing college in 1961, I went to the military. And I've always been a pretty innovative guy and looking for shortcuts. I'm not shortcuts to compromise the, the workload of the amount of work that you're supposed to be doing and the quality of the work, but uh, shortcuts to, to cut through the chase and get be the most efficient person you could be. That's a little bit of my German blood in me, I guess, or Austrian blood. So uh, after college, I went to the military and I was very fortunate to get into the counterintelligence corps after infantry school and I spent, it was business pre-Vietnam, and I spent uh, about a year and a half at the Presidio of San Francisco. And while I was there, um, I made some suggestions to the military people to do some things that would make them more efficient and, uh, and help the process of, of doing the kinds of uh, investigations that we did. And that's what it was, it was an investigative unit, like a bunch of uh, army detectives. That's basically what we were doing. And I had some incredibly um, interesting and uh, advanced training in investigation, investigation techniques after I finished my infantry training at Fort Benning, which was kind of an eye opener. It was, it was really new stuff. I was a kid, I was 22 years old. So this is all stuff I had never seen before. So all of a sudden I started to think about a lot of this stuff. And when I got to my assignment here, I thought, well, wait a minute, we could do things a little better. All right. So, I had some success for that. I went to law school, and when I was in law school, um, I got to know the deans. Uh, obviously, I was a veteran, and so I was a little older than some of the guys in my class, and had a little bit more maturity, I'd hope. And um, I also suggested some things to them that they might want to do that might make the law school experience a little more um, interesting and informative and educational. Um, and indeed, uh, about five years later, I was asked to come down to Hastings Law School to become assistant dean, and I was 29 years old. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the faculty at Hastings was all composed of retired professors from all these other fine law schools who had to retire at age 65, and they had no job at 65. That was mandatory. Uh, and uh, Hastings uh, was uh, stressed during World War II this was much after, but in during World War II, the dean was having a problem because all these uh, young professors were getting drafted. So he reached out to these law schools, to all these retired professors, and said, look, can you come out and teach at my law school? And so Hastings developed this incredible faculty from people that were retired, the best names in the business. And, and that continued because the dean found that was such a great idea. And so that was the faculty I had, and I had some names in, in law school that were just were icons and quite incredible people. So when I went back to teach there, it was still that way, but I was the first person hired who was under 65. And the reason for that is because in um, 1970, there was this um, revolution on most of the university campuses. It was almost an uprising. Uh, the Black Law Students Association, the Asian Law Students Association, the Poor White Law Students Association, the, the uh, Japanese Law Students Association. I mean, every group um, had a um, specialty uh, organization that was 
organized was uh, ar arguing for benefits for its group under these new legal educational opportunities programs, which recognized that some of these groups didn't have the advantages of the others, and so they would get advanced placement and all that. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So part of the thing I was supposed to do when I went down there was to negotiate with all these groups. Well, I had in the back of my mind, I was going to do something in addition to that, and that was start a summer program for trial lawyers, because when I was in law school, nobody taught you how to try a case. It was all just book work. That's changed some since. So I advocated for a more proactive, get out there, get some experience type of program, just like medical schools. You know, after your first year of medical school, you go to some classes, but a lot of it's just internship experience, hospital work, that sort of thing. So that's what I was trying to do for the law schools. And uh, one of the things I developed was the Hastings College of Trial and Appellate Advocacy, which was a summer program of lawyers to come out and hear what other lawyers had to say. But as part of the process, we built a television set. Uh, and I don't mean a one to look at, I mean a set for a courtroom. And we got the University of California television office to come over and televise these wonderful demonstrations with real judges, real lawyers, and actors, professional actors and actresses as witnesses. And we had a jury box. We had the whole thing. I mean, these tapes were unbelievable. It was, wow. if you ever see anything from the Hallmark Hall of Fame back in the 70s, we could do one better. <laughs> and that was long before uh, People's Court. Oh, my goodness. We were talking 1971 was the first year. We produced over... Uh, 70 hours of training tapes for lawyers through this program and sold them to other law schools for the trial advocacy programs. Now the students had something to look at. And what you did was you took the fact situation from that particular uh, video experience and you had the, the kids, the, the students, do it in a courtroom setting with a real judge, the same fact situation. They'd have a, a witness on the stand, and they'd do whatever this little uh, vignette was. After it was over, the judge, who was a, a teaching judge, would critique them, say, okay, you should have done this, you should have done that. Then they'd go watch the video of, of the same thing being done by the, the real lawyers in our Hastings program, and then they'd come back and they'd have a discussion with the, the teacher, the judge teacher, about how they could do better and what have you. So it was a, it was experience, critique, visualization, and post-critique. That was the educational model, and it was totally new. Wow. Nobody ever done this before. So that went on for a number of years at Hastings. I also taught a trial advocacy course where I, I used some of the same stuff, and I, I won't go into all the details about the teaching models and all that, but it was a little hard to get people to buy into this. And the only way I could do it was to bring uh, practicing lawyers into the classroom because the classroom people didn't know a whit about how to try a case. Uh, they knew what the rules of evidence said and knew what the Supreme Court said in this case and that case, but they had no idea how it worked in a practical experience. So the real lawyers came in and now we combine the judge with a real lawyer as the co-teacher in the seminar. And so the judge and the lawyer would combine to critique the students. They would then go see the video. 
then they come back and do a post um, uh, video uh, critique as well. So that went on for a number of years. The Hastings program lasted uh, for many, many years when it was outside of the school budget. At one point, they had to put it in the school budget, and that killed the program, although they were thinking about revitalizing it. But recent events have kind of put the, the damper on that for a while. What I got from most of that was a lot of experience with video. And um, the, um, the guy that produced these programs from uh, the University of California Television Office at Berkeley, who was my cohort in crime in this program, Paul Rush and I became very good friends. <clears throat> Sorry. And so we combined together along with another guy uh, by the name of Ernie Short, <clears throat> dear me, who was director of the National Center for State Courts. And for my teaching uh, pedestal, I was able to make contact with a lot of these people. And that gave me some credibility. And even after I left as assistant dean and went back in private practice in 72, I maintained an adjunct position with, it, with the law school, and I was still involved with this program that I'd started. So I, I still worked on all that. And so that gave me a credential, so to speak, to, to get open doors. And I, I won't even tell you the story about how I got the money to pro, start this program. I mean, it's short of stealing. It was, it was about this close from a federal offense. <laughs> but I got the money, and that's how, that's how it got going. But anyway, um, down the line, <clears throat> Uh, the next thing I did, also while Hastings, I developed an interest in video, and um, this judge in um, Sandusky, Ohio, Jim McChrystal, who's a subject of one of the uh, articles I sent you, was doing these, what they call privets, pre-recorded video, videotape trials. Very innovative. Um, and, and I found him through my contacts, and we got him to come out to the college bed to see and talk about that and be a judge, and we got to be good friends, and so we, he was a very innovative guy. So here's what he did. All the witnesses' testimony was pre-recorded. The uh, lawyers would make objections, the judge would look at the tape, rule in the objections, uh, edit out the, the bad stuff, keep in the good stuff, jury would be impaneled, the judge would be sitting there, Lawyers asked the questions, picked the jury. Once the jury was picked, the bailiff was in charge, and the jury saw the whole tape, uh, whole trial on video. And then the judge would come back in, the lawyers would argue the case, the jury, jury would deliberate, and they come back with a verdict. A two-week trial was tried in three days. Wow. Uh, this never caught on, unfortunately. It, it was absolutely marvelous for certain types of cases. Now remember, this is not a remedy for everything. This is, is, this is a tool to be used in the right situation. And why, so, do, you, why do you think it, it didn't catch on? Have you ever dealt with a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know what, here's the, here's the example. If a, if a doctor today from Lincoln's era walked into a hospital, he would have no clue or she would have no clue where to go. In fact, it would probably be a he, uh, would have no place to go, right? You take a lawyer from Lincoln's era, he walks in the courtrooms, he knows exactly where to sit. Nothing's changed. So lawyers yeah. are wedded 
to a process. Trying to innovate and do things differently. I, I told you I played the first videotape deposition in a trial in California, 1972. For 30 years, mm -hmm. nobody even thought about it. Now, occasionally. Now, occasionally. But not frequently. What um, obstacles did you face initially when you wanted to use video and audio evidence in the courtroom? And how do you think those obstacles would apply today with, with lawyers looking into getting virtual? Here's the best example. I arbitrated a case two years ago. Almost all the depositions were taken by video remotely. Um, I didn't record everyone because uh, if the witness is going to show up, at the trial, I didn't need a, re a video record. But what? But because I didn't want to travel there, they'd be in, so I have the court reporter, the lawyer for the witness, uh, and the video operator there. I'd be in my office just like we are now. Is that like a Zoom deal? So I'm, I'm in my coat and tie with my swimming suit on, and I'm asking questions, and, and my exhibits have been, all been sitting down there, pre-marked, now that takes a lot of work, takes pre-planning. The court reporter is there, so there's no tomfoolery. Okay. The, the lawyer can't pass notes because the court reporter's gonna know that, so it's a secure process. I'm asking my questions, the witness is answering them, and actually it's, it's a much more focused present, uh, uh, a presentation because there's no distractions. Everybody is used to looking at a video. So their eyes are just fixed on it. So the, the witness is watching me, I'm watching her or him, and I'm asking the questions and I'm getting my answers and I'm listening very carefully and the court reporter is taking everything down. I get my transcript after. And if I want a video transcript, fine. If I don't, I don't have to have a video transcript. Back in 71, um, everybody had to show up for trial. Um, I proposed that video depositions be allowed and also that video depositions of doctors who are often unavailable or have problems getting to a trial because of their own schedule be allowed if they are if their schedule is significantly influenced by the the uh, requirement of a, of a live court appearance that was very innovative that finally got allowed 30 years later so what do you think would be people's hesitation to allow more video um, testimony or depositions, what's sort of the psychological aspect that lawyers might be missing, for example, being able to have eye contact with the person, read their nonverbals and so forth. Do you think that that is limiting people's willingness to do these sort of remote and virtual trials? Yeah, I don't think lawyers are very innovative and they like to do things the old fashioned way and they think there's got to be sweat and, and uh, saliva, uh, you know, floating around the courtroom and in a cross-examination. <laughs> um, it depends. Certainly, with my, in my arbitration that I had, uh, where I didn't take any of the depositions uh, in person, I mean, I took them all on video, uh, that saved me a lot of time. Now, the witnesses were all live. Mm -hmm. There is no way they're gonna be distracted. Everybody is used to watching TV, you, 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 you go into a room with people and you watch people come in the room and you have a TV screen on with a football game. 
what's the first thing they look at? Television screen. Mm -hmm. They don't look around to see who's there that they know. They look at the television screen. Right. There was something about a TV screen that just says, wow, lock in. So mm -hmm. if you're going to keep somebody's attention, that's a great way to do it. And um, I've, I've, done, I've done several cases with video depositions. And when I play in my argument, when I play the video back, that's the most attention I get from the jury. So what are your thoughts on um, when you first advocated for students to do mock trials to get more clinical experience? What were the most important features of a courtroom that you wanted to replicate? And, and how does that translate into today's court if we have virtual or remote sessions? What do we need to be aware of to keep it as realistic as possible, to keep people engaged and have it feel like it's still a real trial? I don't think you can. I yeah. don't think you can. If somebody's sitting in their bedroom in their pajamas as a juror in a civil case where the jurors are all 12, 8, 12, whatever the number is, 6, different locations, you're never going to give them, get them the feeling of being in that courtroom because remember, you've got all these indicia of authority in that courtroom. You've got the, the judge's bench where he sits. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've got the seal of the great state of whatever behind you. Mm -hmm. You've got the mm -hmm. bailiff there with the, that's armed. You've got the court reporter with her equipment or his equipment there. Uh, there, there is a and and there's an it's a court family that's there that's in front of you. You've got the well where you can't walk. You have to walk around either side. You've got the approach the witness. I mean all that that at that theater of the real is so dynamic and so important to the process that to me, I, I as innovative as I'd like to think I am, I would never be in, in favor of a uh, trial where people were looking at it remotely. Now, mm -hmm. here's what I would say. If you're, do, if you're looking at a court trial for the judge, that might work. An arbitration, Definitely, that would work. Where witnesses can appear, I'd rather see them appear like we're appearing live by Zoom as opposed to video. We don't need a videotape anymore. You've got all these uh, remote transmission processes now. Google, uh, Zoom, I mean, whoever, everybody out there's got their deal. So, mm -hmm. court trials, motions, um, even very important motions. Hearings, appellate court, all that stuff. Why do people have to get on airplanes? And it's going to be tougher now anyway because the airplanes are going to carry, carry half as many people and you're going to have to wear, wear a mask all the time and it's very inconvenient. It's going to be a pain in the ass. All the security stuff, you got to walk, you can't take your carrot juice on the plane anymore. Um, you, you, you've got hotels that are going to have their special rules. You're going to have cabs tra and, and uh, transportation that have their special rules. Court appearances. Uh, Particularly, uh, just administrative appearances. So, sure, we don't even need the we don't even need the camera. But I definitely right. think arbitrations, um, court trials, motions, appellate hearings, uh, all that stuff. Yes, uh, decision making research is just as important in a court trial as it is in a jury trial. Mm -hmm. I think the 
evaluation of the judge is just as important if the judge is making the decision. I have used that uh, technique in appellate court arguments as well. Mm -hmm. Evaluating the panel, looking at their history, uh, having people attend the hearings, body language, I don't care if it's a jury or not. So we always mm -hmm. include the judge in our analysis of what was going on. So mm -hmm. it, it was important to, to recognize that case research, uh, human behavior research, all this kind of stuff is just as critical in appellate court arguments, important motions, um, court trials, no matter what you're doing. Um, you know, with all the health precautions there, it still wouldn't be the same, right? If someone's face from the nose down is hidden, I think that that would, you know, that would detract from the lawyer's ability to establish rapport with the jury, to be able to read their facial expression. Um, so even with physical presence, if there's limitations, then I think that's going to affect the processes we're used to. Yeah, maybe not, but yes, it, it, all the way around, yes, I agree with you. You probably, you might be able to get away with it with the jury having mass. The witnesses, mm -hmm. the judge, the lawyers, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. I don't think. I'm wondering if there's a way to have the jury sequestered together, but separately, like not having them Zoom from home, but maybe they have to go to a hotel conferencing room. And they're all in the same hotel, but maybe they're in separate rooms or something. Yeah. Um, because Wait. they're, you know, to have that security. Now, remember, your pre-recorded videotape trial can cut down the time that's involved in the case. If you if you really compromise the whole uh, process, you could have all of the the witness testimony pre-recorded, and have the jurors at separate places watching it together, 